Welcome to our fifth podcast in our series on Model-Based Systems Engineering, or MBSE. We are again joining our moderator, Nick Finberg of Siemens Global Marketing, interviewing Tim Kinman, Vice President of Trending Solutions and Global Program Lead for Systems Digitalization at Siemens Digital Industry Software. And we are continuing to talk with Matt Bromley and Matt Malinowski, also of Siemens, discussing the impact of MBSE in the aerospace and automotive industries. In the last episode, we covered some of the history of model-based development in the electronics world and described what requirements decomposition looks like in the field. But we wrapped up on a very important topic for the increasingly complex world of EDA, digitalization. You've got to digitalize and you've got to make sure everything's accountable, but the breadth of development is becoming a stressor with how many transistors, how many items you have on an individual board. Are you guys working towards automatable as well? I know a lot of other domains are trying to figure out what ways to make certain structures without having to devote any engineering time to it. I'm sure with having billions of transistors, you have some amount of that, but can you talk a little bit to it? I can talk a little bit to that in the board space. And I think there's a couple of levels of automation which which are really necessary as we move forward. I mean, I, th- I think we should start off sort of small and talk about automation around verification. I mean, that's very common in the software world. Being able to take a set of requirements that match the architectural breakdown have been parameterized in a way that we can then automate the verification of would be a big step forward. We're close in a few areas, but we still have a lot of human in the loop in that process. And so at the end of the day, when I, I come back and say, I verified this board, that's really reliant on a, a group of specialized individuals saying, yes, it, it, it's going to meet those requirements. And we need to move that to being more automated for multiple reasons. I mean, one is those are very expensive um, resources who can do that generally and are kind of scarce. The more we can automate that, the more we can make sure that that is guaranteed up front. You kind of touched on another area, I think, which is design automation and how we can do maybe bring in some new technologies around AI and ML. That's a little bit of a, a, a different approach, but um, we're certainly looking at that and uh, how that can be both leveraged to increase designer productivity, how it can be used to increase the accuracy of simulation. So you know, how can I see what I need to simulate rather than looking at an entire design and saying, hey, let me just try and simulate the entire thing, which is a little bit more practical maybe um, and the regularity of the IC side than on the board side. How can I use AI to work out what I need to simulate because that has proven to be the areas that need to be uh, simulated in prior in prior examples? So you're almost using it to find the edge cases. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, kind of the holy grail of how can you start looking at it to do generative design, right? You know, how, how from a set of requirements can I actually start moving into generative design? But of course, that's a little bit uh, um, further away. Clearly, there's a spectrum of automation-based efficiency improvements. If we just look at things in the in the near term that we think we can attack, as we are refining architecture, as you know, Tim keeps highlighting, what are the attributes of elements of those architectures that will enable the specification and constraint of the design of those elements and implementation of those elements in such a way that it facilitates verification. That's an area we have to do a lot of work in yet. We're, we're starting to scratch the surface on that in enhancing the architecting tools so that 
number one, we just highlight to the author of the architecture or doing the refinement that those attributes are, are important and necessary and how they how they need to be put in there such that we can leverage and, and semi-automate the use of them. So that's an area that we're going to have to tackle first as we try to build this commonality across the electronics domains of architecture. Almost like you're using autopilot for verification. You have your end state that you know you need to hit. How do I get there? Certainly the conditions of the end state, like if I can't see the runway, I better make sure my instrumentation knows where it is, right? That kind of stuff. So it's 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 if I have a particular element that I'm going to have to drive a design with, I'm going to have some attribute of bandwidth or power or latency or CPU utilization or some aspect like that that's going to be a refined aspect of don't crash the plane or the car, right? So you're you're making sure upfront that you have a somewhat reasonable path to get to that verified state. You're verifying at the end, but are you like with each addition of technology, maybe you're adding a component to the board, maybe you're uh, rerouting a trace on the board, maybe you're switching to a new package. Are, are those kind of initiating verification points within the entire development process? Or are you kind of doing that all the time? That would be a good end state. I, I think maybe it's worth cycling back. I mean, clearly it's a good end state, right, Nick? I mean, every time you make a change, being able to verify that change uh, against a set of requirements is really the continuous verification goal. And there's plenty of examples of how that works in software fairly well. I mean, I think we have many challenges along the way. The architectural decomposition from a system into multi, multi-domain electronics hasn't been well solved in the electronics domain today. And so you still see that most of just that simple architectural breakdown and a digital thread of that architectural breakdown is broken. And and what happens is you get a lot of PowerPoint and Visio in the middle of that process that then breaks the digital thread, creates uh, misinterpretation, prevents us having architectural continuity, because what you're really doing is, you know, taking this sort of system level breakdown that somebody came up with, passing it across to a hardware architect who's then putting his interpretation on that and then re-entering the information he's been given in his capture system. So in electronics, that would be sort of schematic capture. But there is no electronic digital thread that's even linking that architectural decomposition process there. And we see that across the industry today where we don't see that that piece of the problem being well um, well solved. And that's sort of, you know, sort of prerequisite number one. We think we can solve that and help the industry solve that. But that that's sort of the first step in where we want to go. And from that standpoint, man, it's not just about having traceability of the requirements to engineering, but it's about traceability of the analysis of impact regardless of where the change is occurring. Whether I have a requirements change, a system change, interface change, I need to be able to have that traceability all the way down to the board level to understand the impact. Yeah, that's right. And, and both ways, right? I mean, one is if the requirement changes what implemented that requirement so I can do that change impact? And the other is, I mean, I had to change this component out because it uh, it went end of life. There was a supply chain issue. I mean, that's very, very common in today's supply chain challenges, right? I mean, you can't get the silicon that you need. You change it out for something else. What requirement do I need to re-verify that against? Because that may have a slightly different spec. And so even that bi-directional connection of requirements so you can do change analysis is is, is critical. Well, you mentioned supply chain. This is 
not only having a huge impact on the OEMs or the engineering partners, but in the manufacturing supply chain as well. I mean, if you imagine if you have a, you've missed a requirement or you've, you've failed on an integration and you spend a lot of money in the manufacturing process only to find out that it doesn't work. Is the supply chain changing the way they work too? I mean, how are they evolving as more and more of this complexity as we described it increases? How is the supply chain evolving? In general, I think that our expectations are that everybody is is being forced to change. And it's just a matter of what degree of change is being forced upon you. And so some of the, the traditional companies that had long lead times to do fabrication, it seems like they're being under more and more pressure to ensure that what they build even in today's market of, you know, limited, and we see in the news over and over, right, limitations on silicon for chip manufacturing, shortages of chip, whether it's in uh, automotive or it's everywhere. And so it's, it's become a scarce commodity. So you can imagine people don't want to have situations where they have failure late in that, in that manufacturing process. Right. I mean, I, I think you've got, if, if you just take the example you went through, Tim, about the silicon supply chain of, of um, chips, right? I mean, there's plenty of news, certainly in the automotive industry. I think Toyota and, and I think it was Toyota cut production by some percentage that's uh, equivalent to you know, several billion dollars of market opportunity. And so bringing the supply chain resilience into the design process is going to be critical moving forward. And so there's no point designing if you can't manufacture. Having visibility into that supply chain is going to be critical as well. And so what is the future availability of silicon that is being manufactured is one one aspect of that. The other, of course, is where is that supply chain being consumed and are you going to be able to get access to the elements of the supply chain that you need to meet your manufacturing demand? And so I think it's slightly it, it, it's definitely related in terms of being able to verify an overall architecture and then take that down into implementation. And what we're going to see is a requirement to have much more visibility into the supply chain and be able to design for supply chain resilience moving forward than we have in the past. And maybe a more indirect answer to your question, Tim, is this effect of you know 90% yield, 50% success once it gets to the customer. That oftentimes is ambiguity in the requirements of the specification. So the the supplier manufacturer can demonstrate with what they're shipping to their customer meets the specification, but it doesn't work in their system. So what you see is the indirect effect of that is that the customer and end user is putting more pressure back on the supplier to say, I need more insight into how you're refining your your requirements and your and your verification of them so I can help you can help me help us both to close this gap so that you know 90% yield you know translates much closer to 90% success rate. And I would expect in that supply chain if they're not if they're not adapting these model-based principles and working in that way either the the main product manufacturer is going to bring that in-house they'll say okay I can't afford to have errors late in the game I'm either going to do it myself with some custom chip type of technology and development or I'm going to change suppliers. Yeah, and I think we see that exact behavior coming with some of the more thought leaders at the supplier level, you know, level two, level three suppliers, for example, in the DOD ecosystem. The DOD and the branches are demanding more system models be delivered 
you know, earlier in the design cycle so they can try to attack this problem. And the suppliers are going, these models that they're asking for aren't going to help us close that, that gap. So how we see industry commonize on what's the, you know, the, consume, the customer's way to express system models and consume refinements of that system model it's going to have to embrace the needs of the supplier and their design flows, especially electronics design and manufacturing flows, so that those those seams that are in between those two are, are closed. Well, that sounds like a very good vision for the future of uh, electronics and MBSE. Before we wrap up, do you guys have any other things that you're, you're hoping for in the next five to 10 years? What do you see as plotting the course for EDA? With MBSE? Well, one of the areas we're focusing on is this idea of how do we hybridize a digital twin? Digital twins just don't magically show up. They're, they're developed in, in, in parallel while the subsystem or the system's being developed. And we need to shift left and we need visibility sooner that we're, we're building the right thing across the supplier boundary. So how do we do that? And we're, we're looking at different techniques of modeling and simulation that may not be accurate, but they're close enough to tell us that we're, you know, we're in the right range of performance. So in many cases, 10% inaccuracy might be a showstopper, but when you're early in your estimation of one architecture trade-off against another, a 10% inaccuracy is is still good enough to eliminate architectures that are not that are going to be too high risk of either succeeding initially or not being able to sustain any kind of growth in capability through the deployment cycle. Because even fifty percent accuracy is better than zero if you didn't do anything. No visibility and guesswork. Correct. Yeah, we talked about complexity at the start, and even though we sort of hear in the pure IC space that Moore's law might be. Uh, starting to become a, a, a limitation. The complexity of electronics continues to grow at the rate it's grown. We, we, we see that a big emphasis on packaging and 3DIC is a potential way of um, introducing more capability uh, onto a single package. Uh, we don't really see any slowdown in the overall complexity increase in electronics and where it's being used and what the requirements are around electronics that are going to continue to drive that complexity. And so we're seeing this complexity curve continue. We're seeing our customers looking to help uh, manage these complexities. So, you know, this is a problem that uh, we're going to focus on and help our customers solve. So it really is starting to become at the forefront of a lot of thought that um, customers are bringing to us. So although you kind of started the call with a little bit of a history lesson there, Matt, I think it's almost like, hang on, because you ain't seen nothing yet. It's it's going yeah. to go faster, right? Exactly. I mean, if you look at the, that complexity curve over history, it's continued to accelerate. And I, I see that that's going to continue moving forward. Although I imagine your gas pump's going to stay pretty much the same. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Fantastic. Thanks all. Thank you for joining us in this fifth podcast of our series on model-based systems engineering. As always, we look forward to future discussions on innovative technologies that impact the future of manufacturing.